From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to our another virtual edition of our show. We're coming to you via Zoom. This is Kate Massey hosting with my colleagues and friends, Eric Bradlow and Ani Weiner. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Guys? Good afternoon. We are going to do a full show, full two-hour show here. We've got a little COVID-19 business on the front end, and then we'll talk football in the second quarter, and then plenty of other sports to talk about, baseball, basketball, tennis, in the third. Guys, we're still very much in the middle of this thing, and there's lots of coronavirus news, some affecting sports, some just continuing to affect our lives. Let's dive in and, and, and hear a little bit about what's catching your eye. Obviously, the White House news over the last week, last few days anyway, has been interesting. What do you think we've learned, if anything, from what has happened at the White House? I'm not sure what we learned. Uh, we knew that indoor gatherings of large numbers of people are not a good idea. <laughs> and that is, I mean, there was a big outdoor, outdoor component of it, but I think most of the spread happened inside um, the White House. And it was, and I think that's that's definitely acknowledged. And also, testing is not a, a way of of keeping the virus at bay on a local or individual level. I think it's a good idea for society to be testing, but I don't think it's a good. It's not, not going to work um, on an individual level. Although let's, it does decrease its probabilities, right? Let's talk about that because you get the sense that there was a false sense of security among those in the White House and maybe probably in other pockets of government or other organizations that comes from extensive testing. So we've seen the NBA lock down their bubble very successfully. We've seen the NHL do it. The White House acted as if they had such a bubble through this testing, but obviously didn't. So in what ways does extensive testing, even extensive testing, not provide the kind of security they seem to think they had? Well, the White House was basically a revolving door of people walking in. Um, The NBA, baseball, it's the same people getting tested over and over again to make sure there isn't an outbreak. They were using this on thousands of people. Um, This is bound to have an error. (laughs) Yeah, you need a close. So as Adi points out, if everybody that came into the White House had significant testing, also, let's remember, I mean, Adi's pointed this out a number of times. I can be a carrier of the virus and a spreader, and my test could come up negative right now. Well, that's the thing I think, that's the biggest hole that I see, is that I don't care if everybody tests, because you're yeah. going to get people who are um, not coming up positive who are going to be contagious, right? We just but know those that. People are, those people are rare, um, in, just in society-wide right now, where there's generally low prevalence, Maybe there's one in a hundred of them, maybe a little less. The recent results at, at, for example, Penn were even smaller. But, and then only about one in 10 of those will be missed anyway. But the White House was taking so many shots at this apple. I mean, over and over and over again, they're bound to get a rare event with high probability. But, but okay, but now that it's in, it spreads, but doesn't it spread because they're putting too much confidence in the test? So Hope Hicks comes down with a positive, mm-hmm. but- she's already spent some time in close proximity to other people before that test comes through. Right. So she, there must've been a contagious period before the test came in. I mean, there's, so there's, there's some kind of mismatch between the behavior and the actual period of time when they're well have been, by the way, we, I'm not, this isn't, I'm not, it's not an accusation or anything. She may have been 
the fifth most, the fifth person to be. That's right. right. We have That's no right. idea that she was the person That's that infected right. lots of people. Agreed entirely. I was just making it concrete. And I, you know, I'm happy to um, criticize public officials in other forum, but, but my point here is not so much the White House it is, as it is about testing, because we have this offered as a solution in lots of settings. And I think what, it's just an imperfect solution. Even when you're pretty extensive about it, it's an imperfect solution. I thought also, Kate, the part that was underplayed, which I've now heard in the last couple of days, and they said this in the beginning, but now maybe they're going to say it more. My understanding, Adi, you know a lot more about this than I do, that wearing a mask more, not saying it doesn't protect you, but it more has to do with you giving it to someone else and therefore, you know, depend on differential mask wearing. Don't think just because you have a mask on. Well, if I'm with you and you're COVID positive and you're spreading virus and I have a mask on, but you don't and you're the positive person, it's not helping you as much. Matter of fact, I'd rather switch the two masks between us. I think that's right. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I think it, but it, makes a, it makes a difference in both cases, but the bigger effect is on the one who actually has the contagion. Of course, to be sure, that depends on the type of mask. And there are these uh, actual medical masks, the N95. Yeah, I'm assuming that, everyone has yeah. an N95 for the moment, which isn't true. You're right. I'm true. just assuming. Uh, yeah. it's, that's actually an interesting thought argument, which would, you know, it's kind of, um, to try, it would be an interesting test of people's understanding. Imagine two people talking to each other. One person has COVID, one does not. Who would you put the mask on? You have one single mask yeah. and you want to protect yourself. <laughs> Who would you put it on? Good, good. You know, I quite, quite honestly, I, I, that's a good question. I'm not sure the data that you're referring to is N95. There's very little limited data on that score. Um, right. I, I think it's the standard mask that most people use, which, which have right. a considerable escape hatch of, of, right. uh, of Great point. Uh, aerosols. Uh, and N95s are extremely good. I mean, they make an incredible, impressive seal if it's worn right. If you wear that for long enough, it'll look like you have a nice marking all around your face because it's pretty mm-hmm. tight. Mm-hmm. We don't wear them. I mean, really only uh, healthcare workers properly fitted really do wear those things. Let me ask one more, more White House related question. Did, did, have we learned anything? We've talked a lot on this show about treatments. And we said from the very beginning that you want to get this thing, if you get it, as late as possible because treatments are going to improve over mm-hmm. time. And that's clearly right. borne out. So we, as... As, they, as news came out over what kinds of treatments Trump was getting while he was in the hospital, some of those things were familiar to us. So remdesivir, for example, which people refer, I think that was the steroid they talked about, right? So yeah. what no, else? No, we- he, he, gave, he gave a, he got, a, he got everything. I mean, and, and some things at odd intervals. So he got remdesivir early. He got Regeneron early. Now remdesivir is typically, is, is the, the placebo controlled trial said it was effective late. But the anecdotal um, observational um, and conclusions about remdesivir is it's effective early. Uh, Regeneron, which is a monoclonal antibody, is expected to be working early. One of the things that, that, uh, that I've been consuming some of the, the commentary on it, and, and the, the classic mistake that most people seem to make, is that just because we don't have an RCT, a randomized controlled trial, that's, of course, the gold standard. But those are very, very time-consuming. You have to have enormous sample sizes. They're hard to get started. In this is what I would call war medicine phase that we're in, wartime medicine phase. We have to rely on observational data much more than we ordinarily would like to. And there's a tendency among physicians to just to be to completely dismissive of observational data. And it's odd for me as a statistician to say, hold on a second. And in deference to our causal inference colleagues who have made, a, made their entire living making conclusions from observational data, there's a lot of observational data that suggests that Regeneron early, remdesivir early, zinc early, 
a vitamin D is another thing he's taken early is actually quite effective in treatment. The one mm -hmm. thing that we know placebo controlled is really works is dextromethasone, which is a steroid, but that's only supposed to be taken late. And, and it's actually known that it only works late. And it was a very odd choice for his doctors to prescribe that. So they, to the outside, it just feels like they threw everything against the wall just to be yeah. sure. But, but we don't know that. And like, I mean, these are, these yeah. are presumably some of the best doctors in the world. And they presumably were being thoughtful about it. But they certainly did throw a lot at it. So, Adi, how much of a worry? I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there are thinking, forget early, late. Well, that could be very important. Um, what about the interactions among these things? Yes. And so one of the things I talk about is, um, you know, I work with lots of companies and lots of data sets and lots of people, let's, I'll use the language of marketing. Lots of people run single channel experiments. How's my email working on off? How is my banner ads working on off? The number of companies that are running multi-channel experiments is de minimis. So would you be more worried early, late, or would you more, be more worried about what about the interaction of these three things and the other 18 things they may have them on? You know, I, I wish I were qualified to say I read some interesting articles that suggest that that could be a problem. This would be a biological medical question more, more than anything. These are immuno. Um, some of them are work in opposite ways. Like Regeneron and is, is, is designed to pump up your immune system and dexamethasone is to pull it down. I don't understand how you can be taking both of these things. It would be great to potentially pull a doctor in to explain all this. Let me ask you a question also. Isn't, um, you know, we talk about this all the time. Um, for us to know whether this combat, I understand it's a sample size of one, but for us to understand something, mm. wouldn't we need to have more outcome data than we have now? I know this has been politicized in the news, but I'm just saying, um, you know, I understand there's binary outcomes, death, not death. There's hospitalization, non-hospitalization. But there are things like lung function. There are things like uh, virus yeah, load. Yeah. There are things like... They're not releasing that information. Yeah. yeah. So I know I understand that, but I'm just, that's my point. Yeah. Is I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just saying for us to understand, maybe for us to understand lots of things, shouldn't we be measuring more things, more things on a continuous scale, the underlying, not just the outcomes, but the antecedents? Yeah. Shouldn't we be thinking about things that Absolutely. way? Absolutely. I'm going to actually, I want to piggyback on that, this continuous scale. So many people have tried to make some calculations of Trump's sort of baseline risk of death from a, a, a symptomatic case of COVID-19. And they take his age, 74, definitely not on the good side. Uh, they take his gender, male, way worse than, than female, factor of two, I think, approximately. Then they throw in his obesity. Obesity is not a binary variable. It's not like when you hit 30 with your BMI, it just all of a sudden flips. Uh-oh, you're in trouble. If you can get that down by, by you know, two pounds, you're much safe. And, and I, I find it very... Um, and maybe I say that because Trump and I weigh about the same and I'm about the same height. <laughs> I'm maybe a, a tad taller than he is. And uh, <laughs> so I'm like, wait a minute, you got to be quite careful with this term. Most people who are obese in that category are way, way deeper into the, into the category. And yeah. when you look at these aggregate statistics and they say that obesity is, is uh, clearly a comorbidity, that probably has to be more obese than, than Donald Trump is. And just Good. to be clear, by the way, just for our uh, you know, geeky listeners, we hope everybody out there is listening to, um, I was talking about 
non about continuous outcome variables y's adi's talking yes. about continuous x's <laughs> x. x's yeah. but either way yeah, both of those easy. points are crucially he important clearly had a personal axe to grind on that i point. did have it because i was listening to a doctor talk about his obesity and somehow being obese is horrible and i could think of you just you just ran a binary variable on your, on your regression right. model why don't you make your, your bmi a continuous function and maybe we can get a little bit more sense out of it all right, guys, uh, in, in the world of coronavirus and on this theme of oversimplification, I'd love to talk a little bit about an article that came out last week in The Atlantic by uh, Zainab Tufekci. Zainab is a, a, really a, a, a public intellectual at this point, commenting on a number of things, but she's been prescient on a number of issues, including on the, on the coronavirus. She's an academic. Um, she's down in UNC Chapel Hill, I believe. And uh, her article is called This Overlooked Variable is the Key to the Pandemic, and it's not R. And she's talking about K, which is the dispersion of R. And guys, um, as geeky as that sounds, it is the single best article that I have read on the pandemic since this whole thing started early this year. Let's dive into it a little bit because I think it goes deeper than some of the comments we've made in the past about heterogeneity. We've talked about the fact that R0 is not homogenous, that people have different levels of R, and that probably has some implications that we haven't spun them out. This whole article is about the implications of that. So let's, let's dive into it a little bit. I, I want to recommend it again. Again, Zainab Tufeki, The Atlantic, last week, this overlooked variable is the key to the pandemic. Let's, because I do think it's interesting to point out what consequences there are to the fact that some people spread this a lot more than other people. That's really what it comes down to. Whenever we talk about r naughts or RT, we're talking about RT a lot these days, that's an average across all people of the number of people that are being infected at any given time versus the number of people who are rolling off of infection. And we talk about R, we want RT below one. And when this thing first hit, people were concerned that this R naught, which is RT in the first period, was like four and it's really bad because so many more people are going to get infected. And, and, and the point of this article is that's an average and some diseases are pretty homogenous where, you know, if it's an R naught of, 1.5, then it's kind of always a 1.5. Other diseases are, are over-dispersed, where some people might infect 10, 20, 30 people, while a lot of others infect zero. That's the fundamental idea here, and there's lots of interesting implications. Adi. So what you're describing statistically, we might call a spike in a slab distribution, where there's a spike at zero, and that seems to be the, the implication of her article, that many, many, many people most, the vast majority, really don't give it to anyone. And then there's a long slab of people who, tra who transmit it to many, many people. Uh -huh. What I gathered from, her, from the article was not so much um, the individual that determines that, but it's a combination of the individual and the situation. That's right. Which why I think the, there's a real lesson for us as society. Basically, the point was there are these super spreader events that are a combination of the right person in the right setting. And it just an explosive. This is where you'll get uh, this conference in um, in uh, Boston, where apparently seated all the entire Northeast came from right. that. And but the, she also made a stronger claim that it was basically what, a series of bad, unfortunate events that seeded enough of these these super spreader events in the Northeast of the United States, which turned the Northeast into what it turned into, and it kept the West looking very, very different. Right. Right. Yeah, the part I was going to comment on is let, let's do the following, you know, thought experiment, similar to the thought experiment we said about who gets a mask. So I'm going to give you two situations. They're both going to have the same mean. 
So that's not a factor, but they're going to have different variants. Let's imagine I, I was going to drop you in a room and the prevalence of people with COVID was 1%. And it could be half the people with zero and half with 2%, or the other one is half at a half and the other half at 1.5. So they both have 1%, both populations. Which room would you rather be in? And which one is better for society in terms of the diffusion curve? The zero two room or the half one and a half room? I would think that the zero two would be better because I can just hang out with fewer people and have a pretty good chance of zero. But, but, but that's, I, that, I don't have a lot of strength on that conviction, but that's my quick reaction. It depends a little bit on my behavior. If I'm, if I'm a one or two person conversation one or two conversation person at a cocktail party then i'm not well, running mean, into i'm not i'm not rolling the dice very often so you know i think that had to do with good for me. i think the issue had to do with though in, in an inside room it just it with enough time what you need is one of those super spreaders in there and you want to make sure you get one of them so uh, if whatever's more like whichever situation is more likely to get one of those super spreader type people is the worst situation for society and probably all, everyone in the room so you, I would think because of the many to one aspect of it, and, you know, mm-hmm. in some sense, would do you want this to be a homogeneous diffusion process or do you want it to be a heterogeneous clustering diffusion process? This is and what that's we what probably, it is. I know, I know. And I'm saying my guess is I actually think we want it to be the latter. That's a better choice. If we know what that's the issue, it's a it's we can solve the problem with the miss the most um, with the least uh, pain. Okay, so this I is completely agree with that. Assuming. Assuming yeah, you can identify right. and isolate, Good. And you would so, much rather have the latter. No, Good. but so I'm going to go further. If we can take away the situations where those spread, that's that, right. would, that would take away. I mean, I'm essentially arguing that as long as we keep out people out of, of, of tight indoor places without circulation, without social distancing, without masks, we will just continue to have trickles of cases. Good. And so no outbreaks. Let's stay with this because this is exactly why I think this article is worth talking about. One, it's hard, to, Eric. Both of both of you. That's I agree. I agree that we'd rather have that, but it, the very first sufficient condition is that we see it for what it is. And one of the hard features of an overdispersed disease is that it's hard to understand, and it doesn't match our our intuitive processes. Mm-hmm. So whenever we see the Northeast blow up, the example you gave a minute ago, the American Northeast blow up and the American West stay pretty quiet. We look for a lot of other explanations when Tofecki's argument is it's stochastic. This is a stochastic mm-hmm. disease that, that these diseases with low Ks, which is the dispersion factor that we're talking about. That. So for example, the 1918 flu, pretty standard, pretty homogenous. The K, the K for that thing was something like one, but something like SARS is more like a 0.16, which means that 10 or 20% of the people are responsible for 80 or 90% of the cases. And so you get this high randomness, this, this, this over-dispersed randomness, and it just doesn't match the way we make sense of the world. And so we start looking for other factors, and it, and it really slows down our ability to tackle it. And we're going to spin out some more implications of that, but that's the very first thing is, okay, great. Let's, let's have the over-dispersed because we can tackle it, but we have to first see it for what it is, and most of us don't think in that way. So my only intuition, uh, and uh, Kay Nadi, tell me if this is bad intuition. So let's imagine that the, the he- there's a heterogeneous distribution, and let's imagine it has a longer right tail, okay? The first statistical thing that's coming to my mind is this 
this heterogeneity is log normalish, meaning a heavier right tail. The mean of the log normal is a function of the variance. And so you've got the, the expectation has a mean component and a variance component. So my mathematical intuition says that the long right tail is bad. Well, I, I'm going to actually push back on this. I don't think it is log normal. But from what I heard from the article, there's so much at zero. A big mass at zero takes away let's the log the, normal. The, let's say the spike is at zero, but the slab is log normal. So the slab, the slab is, could, could, can, can very well be some sort of, I, you know, I don't think that's bad. It's bad for the society to create a massive spread when it's unchecked. And I think that's, 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 uh, that's your intuition. But I think that it is a lot easier to counter with countermeasures without complete lockdown. Right. And that's my intuition. And right. I would argue right. that. So I, yeah. that, and that's, that's the, that was why I think this article is so notable because it spins out. Cause we've talked about the fact that, this thing is not homogenous, but we haven't taken the next step. It's like, therefore what? And one of the most important therefore is, is to focus on super spreader events. So your point early on, Adi, was it's not about individuals as super spreaders because of their physiological qualities. That might have something to do with it, but the bigger factor is what they do and where they go. And these events become yes. the super spreads. And so if we see it as that, then we can focus our extinction efforts on the events and that can make a big difference if we see that that's what's driving it. Here's a, that's right. Here's the, so that's one of the reasons she goes on to kind of explain Sweden because Sweden, you know, some people mm-hmm. think it's like the worst example and some people think it's the best example. And it turns out that they're, they're looking real good now, but they have done what we have lobbied for doing on the show for a long time, which is they kind of ordered the risks correctly and mm-hmm. started enforcing from the top down. It's like, okay, let's not have large gatherings. Let's not do indoor stuff. Let's not have education for those who are of an age where they spread, you know, so they start with the really mm-hmm. obvious ones and they went pretty lax on the others. And so extremely lax on the others, almost yeah. comically for, to those in the United States. Comically, who think those exactly. Crazy. Comically, yeah. but they had the risk ordered correctly. And so that's the, that's the neat, that's the neat thing about connecting this conversation to this analysis to a country that has kind of stood out compared to other countries. Um, Adi, Eric has slipped away. He's got some Bradlow business to do, but Adi and I are going to continue sitting here talking in this first quarter about the coronavirus. We are talking at the moment about an article that was published last week in The Atlantic by Zainab Tufeki on the fact that R0 or RT is not homogenous. This is an average, but with a disease like the coronavirus, those averages don't mean much because a lot of people don't spread it to anybody something like 60 or 70% of people don't spread it to anybody. And it's not necessarily because they're not shedding physiologically. It's because they're conducting themselves in a way that they don't spread. And then 10 or 20% of people are responsible for like 60, 70, 80% of the spread. And it has big implications for how we fight. It does. In fact, I mean, I think that this is, uh, if I had to make a prescription, I would say immediately on the on the on the far end, enough of the uh, you know the the the, the school marming about about other people, um, because individuals' behaviors in their homes, in the parks, in the little uh, in their little society things, those are not where spreading is coming from. They're coming from big events, and if you look at some of the places where there's been spread. Um, in Europe, where there's a lot of spread, where there's spread in Israel, where there's a lot of spread, where there's spread some spread in New York, where there is, they are all traceable to large indoor gatherings, weddings in particular, bars in another place. And to me, my view is those have got to 
though, or kept very small and, and very safe, indoor weddings, you know, restaurants, bars. But on the other side of things, completely, we have to move way faster towards opening up. That includes elementary schools, younger kids, things of that nature. Right, right, right. Well, uh, the, another tool that we've talked about from the beginning is contact tracing. And so in addition to these kinds of policies, we need to be contract tracing. And an interesting implication, here's a, here's a really interesting one that you'll love, Adi, an implication of this super spreader quality is that we're doing contract tracing wrong. So right now they're doing mm. what's called progr- pr- pr- um, forward or um, um, prospective tracing, where you say, okay, someone's identified as positive. You have to look at everybody they've been in touch with. But if people spread this, if some people spread to zero and then a few people spread it to a lot, it turns out that on average, the person who infected you is going to infect more people than you are. That's a quality. You want to go backwards then, find out who they are. Backwards. Mm -hmm. You want to go back and find out where you received it and then fan out from there because that's probably Mm -hmm. a more productive uh, spreader than you are. This is, this is the same thing as this notion that's called the friendship paradox because social relationships are also overdispersed. You have social butterflies who have a mm-hmm. lot of friends and then a few that have. That means on average, your friends have more friends than you do? On average, on average, <laughs> not in median. <laughs> so for, contact tra- for contact tracing, we, we're, we need to go backwards. And that's back to your idea of identifying these super spreader events. You probably got it. The odds are you're much more likely to have gotten it from a super spreader event than to give it at a super spreader event. And it, and it mm-hmm. changes the way we should be tracing and trying to mitigate this thing. Definitely plausible, although I don't think she was able to convincingly argue that the it's the person as much as the situation. No, I, and I, if it's I, the situation, then going backwards isn't going to help. If it's the person, then going backwards is extremely important. But the situation, mean, I think, so I agree that she didn't, I don't think she really tried. I think she kind of put the person and the situation together. But yeah. I think what you, when you go backwards, you identify situations they might have gotten it from. So that's right. And then it's go, not finding then, a person yeah, right. that yeah. gave it to you so much as a situation where they gave it to you in order to identify other people who are in that situation. There's also some implications for testing. It turns out that this is kind of a over-dispersed diseases are really good cases for the rapid testing because they're mm-hmm. good at identifying negatives. Um, it's, there are a number of interesting little bits in this. It's, an article. it's a long article, but it's one of the most- Well, well worth reading. Yeah, it's one of the most informative we'll run across on the, on the coronavirus front. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter. It's been our coronavirus quarter. We've got a lot of sports to talk about. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now, we have three of the four co-hosts here for this quarter. Cade Massey hosting along with my buddies, faculty colleagues, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. We're just talking a little COVID-19, catching up in the world of coronavirus, there, there were some consequences on the football field this weekend. Shane, you were going to miss the Pats game. Yes. And because you were gone all weekend. Yeah, I was out. off the grid on a little camping trip, and I'd already come to terms with missing this amazing Patriots-Chiefs game. And then they delightfully moved it for, so that I could watch it on Monday night. Of course, yeah. I, I was watching a, a reduced form of it compared to what I was kind of hoping for, like over the are last you, few weeks. Are you suggesting that Hoyer is not the quarterback that Cam Newton is? Is that? I think I think we all I think we all saw saw that. Um, you know, I, I was you know, it, it's kind of interesting to me to kind of look at these 
to be have watched the Patriots this season and been more impressed by their losses than their wins. Um, you know, both the Seattle, I, I feel like they've looked fantastic, actually. Very, like, like contenders in both the Seattle and the Kansas City game. I mean, of course, yeah. the Kansas City game got out of hand at the end, as everyone expected it. But I think most people expected it to get out of hand right from the beginning. So yeah. I was kind of pleased about that. As a Ravens fan, I'm bitter that Mahomes has all these sketchy games against other teams where he has, like, career games. Against well, maybe people should start taking some notes. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. It's, uh, it's, so yeah. it's such the wrong attribution. It's not necessarily him. It's, you know, the defense he's playing. I mean, Belichick yeah. has done a good job on him, his tour. No, I, I, I do think that if I was a Ravens fan, you know, I would be a little dismayed. Like, I'm, the Ravens, to a certain sense, scheme and kind of game plan – it's the same as the Patriots approach to KC the last couple of years, which is just run it as much as possible. Give Mahomes as few drives as possible and kind of hope for the best in the drives that you do have. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. You know, I agree with uh, Shane's assessment. I mean, I watched a lot of that game. Um, I only came away with more impressed with the Patriots. Um, uh, not surprisingly, um, I thought their defense played extraordinarily well. Um, look, here's what you have to do against Kansas city. You just you can't stop everything. So here's what I would do, and this is what Belichick did. You stop the underneath stuff, and you make them beat you deep. And you hope that McCourty and whoever the other corner is can stop the guys one-on-one yeah. on one deep. Yep. And I understand their guys are extraordinarily fast on the outside. But the answer is if you let them complete six- to eight-yard passes every play with 15 yards after the catch, you're never going to stop Kansas City. And if you so, let them continue long drives with some extraordinarily terrible officiating, in my opinion, yeah, there was some that bad also won't but, help. But your point is well taken, which is um, they only gave up 26 points to Kansas City. And you put yeah. – and, and you know, part of it was – And, and 19, it was really only 19 terrible. points offensively. There was no, a no, pick I, six in right, there too. Yeah. Right, good point. So, I mean, you put Cam Newton on that field, you know, I'm not saying Kansas City's not the favorite, but you can't tell me that, that New England yeah. has no chance in that game. No, that's right. I'm, and, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm already kind of thinking ahead to the Patriots probably being – maybe coming into the playoffs on a wild card this year and maybe playing away at Kansas City if they even get that well, far. I, could, I, 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 I think they've the got change. a fair shot in that game. Remember the change this year. So, first of all, this is the year – we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Being the number one seed really matters because, yeah. you guys, remember, they've added an extra team to the playoffs. So, instead of the four division winners and two wild card teams, there's the four division winners and three wild card teams. So the one seed gets a buy. The other teams, matter of fact, the two seed who normally gets a buy doesn't get a buy. And so being the one seed, by the way, there's no guarantee Kansas City is going to be the one seed because there's a bunch of other 4-0 teams in the AFC like the Titans, Steelers, and Bills. But Kansas City is likely to be the one seed. It's a huge advantage this year. I hate, I hate that. I, just, I, I hate it even when there are two, and I hate it even more now that there's one. It's, it's such a big advantage. It's just, I mean, do we really want to take the best team, you know, on average the best team in the conference? and give them even a bigger advantage. I would go the other way. I'd give the, I'd give the bye to the worst team. Let's keep it interesting. Let's yeah. keep it even at the top. Let's give, put the it's, ones and twos and threes. Well, you could have just added two teams. It's certainly you extra. Add, you add two. You make eight and eight, just like yeah. the NBA did. Okay, good. Let's play go. one versus exactly. eight, two versus seven, and play football. Let's go. Well, you know we're going to get there eventually. I mean, it's, they're just slow playing this dang thing, and we'll have 16-team playoffs before. before. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably right. And I mean, like, you know, I certainly – 
Um, I do like kind of a buy system, at least in, ba on, in the baseball analog of this, in the sense that it, ge it gives some value to winning the division as opposed to being a wild card team. What about and the again, seeds? In, the seeds and home and home and home field, which is more, I think, of an advantage in in, in football than it is in baseball. Right. So, so, yeah, so, right. I, yeah, inherently, just having a higher seed and home field, I think, is more advantageous in football. And so, I think the buy is less important as an extra advantage to your regular yeah. season yeah, performance. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, no, I, I'm I'm actually agreeing. I'm not disagreeing. Uh, so, so and it certainly have, is extra capricious now just because, this, you know, often the difference between the one and two seed is more about strength of schedule than anything wonderful. else. Wonderful. You just nailed it. It's capricious. It's so advantageous and capricious. What a terrible combination. If we're going to do that, give it to the, give it to the yeah. seven. Don't give it to the one. Um, guys, I would be happy you know, from an analytics perspective. If we want to do that, then let's take – let's put – I know this will never happen, but we're an analytics show, so let's talk analytics for a second. You know, let's take a team. It could be, I mean, this, let's take Massey Peabody. Let's, if you're going to give it to the one seed, give it to the highest ranked rated team. For example, maybe the reasons it's not true. So maybe the reasons the Bills end up with the best record this year is they're in the weakest division and schedules are not balanced. And so if you, I'm not, I'm, I'm look, I'm dreaming. I'm a statistician. Yeah. I get to dream. Yeah. I know it's never going to happen, but could you imagine the thing that doubles the Bills' probability over the Chiefs is that they get to play one less game because they get to play the Jets, the Dolphins, twice each, as opposed to the Chiefs who have to play stronger teams. And that's what doubles yeah. the Bills' odds? Yeah, so you're yeah. trying to take the capriciousness out of it, which, which mm -hmm. I admire. I do admire. I mean, I mean politically, it's a non-starter, but I think I it is a great idea. I didn't say it's going to happen. I'm yeah. just okay, so, so, so the Chiefs are off to a 4-0 start uh, four years in a row that they've done 4-0, which is an NFL record. As Eric said, there are some other undefeated teams out there. Any thoughts on the portfolio of them? Joining them in the AFC are the Bills, Steelers, Titans, and then on the NFC side, the Packers and Seahawks. What do you think about that set of, um, of undefeated teams? That's a little chalky, huh? As Eric said, it's a little, it's a little chalky that yeah. I guess maybe the Bills. I don't think, I don't think we expected Bills. the Bills to be nearly as good. As yeah, this, right. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I look to them actually to regress a bit this year from their 12 and four last year. Um, and they certainly don't look like it. Right. Um, and, I and the same about the Packers, right? They were mm -hmm. big candidates for regression. They won all those close games last yep. year. They didn't really look like they belong when it came deep into the playoffs. And then Aaron Rodgers has look, they, they did exactly. I, I'm not going to put any strategic intent. I said this last week on our show. Aaron Rodgers is an angry, bad man. This yeah. guy is, I mean, he looks phenomenal. I mean, he's okay, always so phenomenal. He's, if, I'm not if saying. That's, if that story is true, if the story that he, he has a chip on his shoulder now or greater motivation because they spent a first-round draft pick on a quarterback, if that's true, might that pick have been worthwhile even if he never sees the field for the Packers? Could, what value is the pick if it provides that much of a motivational boost to the most important player on the team? Well, there's probably no one on this planet, Kate, that has studied it more than you about whether there's an actual true motivational boost or that's just, you know, BS. And there's no one that's studied the draft and the value of a first-round draft pick more than you. So let me play host just for a second. <laughs> Do you believe there's any motivational value? And what's the value of a first-round pick? And how many wins could that – like, how much does this add to what the Packers are doing? 
I do you know, think I'll, and I I'll put it as motivational value. Um, I, I think it's, I think we who sit on the sidelines and are different species from professional athletes assume that they are maximally motivated at all times. How could they not be, you know, all the millions are watching them, yeah. all their, all the money's weight, but in, but there, but we see motivation matter in different con- contract years matter across all sports. We see the ups and downs. We know that one of the differences across athletes is the degree to which they prepare themselves and train and they care. This is what teams try to identify ahead of time and what separates often guys who stay in the league from guys who don't. So we know that it matters. This, we just haven't seen it in quite this form before. Yeah. And I mean, it's unfortunate. It's also confounded by, because, you know, you could also make, I think of a relatively compelling narrative that it's more about the fact that it's now their second year with, uh, you know, Matt LaFleur, the, you know, I mean, you yes. know, he, he, he was, I think quite obviously frustrated with the previous coaching regime, at least near the tail end of what McCarthy was doing up there. And then last year, of course, was the first season for a new coach. And it would be hard to kind of, start out gangbusters in that scenario. And now we're seeing kind of in a second season with a new coach, maybe yeah, we're just I, kind of seeing a natural kind of who knows whether, progression in their, in their uh, kind of scheming and everything around him. Yeah, who knows which direction the causality is. But the one thing that stuck out to me in the last night's game, I don't think in years I've seen Aaron Rodgers smile as much as I saw him smiling during the, not just because the yeah. game was going well, but he looked like he was having fun. And again, any 4-0 team probably having fun. Um, but in some sense, I, so that's what I'm saying. I don't know the causal direction, but he was actually having fun with Lafleur. That's the part that was a little yeah. shocking. And yeah. so, either way, well, um, I like that. I like that that's, that's I mean, here's the thing: on any given Sunday, I think Russell Wilson is great enough to beat any of those teams. I think on any given Sunday, Mahomes we know is, we know Rodgers is, yeah. and you know, I mean, I'll leave it to Shane to talk about him. Shane and I have always been fans, but Shane's about Big Ben. You know, when Big Ben plays like Big Ben, you know, he's been to three Super Bowls. He's won two. Now, he needs more help around him than the other guys do because he's not the quarterback he was 10 years ago. But, I mean, to me, the four teams that stand out, Steelers, Chiefs, Packers, Seahawks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I agree with that. And of course, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Let's not uh, well, talk on those we can guys. talk about that. I'd be happy. Oh, I, I mean, Eric, how fun is it to have Tom Brady play for your team? I mean, it is not the greatest delight in the world. Well, it let is. me say that. Let me say the oh. things that are not so delightful. Um, he's played four games for the Bucks. He's thrown two pick sixes. Yeah, he does throw a lot games. more interceptions these days. <laughs> That's not exactly delightful, but um, he threw five touchdown passes to five different receivers. It appears that guys are just open all over the field. Like you're watching the, re- yeah. you know, you're watching the replays and like, Oh, Brady could have gone to that guy or that guy or that guy or that guy. Um, his arm strength looks great. I mean, he's throwing the ball 40 plus yards down the field. It's I think like he, he actually has the highest rating on deep balls of any quarterback in the league right now. He does. Jeez. So, I mean, you look at Brady, and by the way, I don't think, and all of my Bucks fans and I have looked at this, we actually don't think the Bucks have played that well yet. Like, this is probably the worst Tom Brady we're going to get, for, mm-hmm. assuming he stays healthy. I think we're going to get a better Tom Brady in the next 12 games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, the, I think the rest of the team, I agree. I mean, the Bucks commit, at least from my viewing, 
a lot of sloppy penalties. Like there's a lot of kind of that stuff. And that is something that I think people talk about the Patriots success. And of course it's Bill Belichick and his Tom Brady and all this type of stuff, but they just, that, that kind of frustrating penalty is so rarely a part of their mix. I think I was watching the game last night and they had a false start. I think in the second quarter, that was their first offensive penalty of the season. Who's the Patriots? The Patriots. What? Yeah. That was the graphic they put up on the screen. That's crazy. Huh. Yeah. I, I, having said it, one should check that. But, I mean, my, my more general point, I mean, because that is almost unbelievable. Is but my fun. more general point remains is that, you know, you just, you know, a team that is well coached, I think, in, at that level just well, here's a question doesn't have so that many penalties. You, let's go back to uh, Cade's original question about the 4-0 teams. We can lump the Buccaneers in there, whatever. If I told you right now, let's say the Packers, the Seahawks, I don't know, the Buccaneers, and the – I don't know who would be the other fourth top team in the NFC. Um, I don't know, 49ers, whoever. It's, uh, 49ers didn't look great. Saints or 49ers, one of those let's say Let's say the Saints. How much more odds would you give, let's say, the Packers or the Seahawks right now than the Bucks or the 49ers? Or how much more odds would you give the Chiefs and the Steelers, let's say, than the Titans and the Bills? Like just as an odds ratio, is it 20% more, 50% more, 100% top versus, more? Top two versus second two is what you're saying? Yeah, top two versus second two. Well, let me say as, as part of my answer, I think one of the delights of what we're seeing in the league so far, as we've seen in this conversation, is the number of good, interesting teams around the league. And we've, we've mm-hmm. kind of slipped into what almost, it almost got a little boring there for a little while. And all of a sudden, we're only a quarter of the way through the season, but all of a sudden it looks like we have a pretty wide range of viable teams. And to me, that's going to suggest more flatness. And I'm, I'm not going to want a big high uh, ratio of top two teams probability versus the next two teams probability in each conference. What so about whatever that. Team? What about your favorite team, Cade? The uh, Cleveland, uh, Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> well how do you know the browns i mean i was with my, i was with my poor nephews on sunday while they watched them destroy the cowboys who my who my nephews pull for and um it's just painful it's painful do you believe in cleveland at all uh not really i i'd have to see more from mayfield and you know he's he, he came in with a bang and he seems to have a lot of potential but i have to see it over a longer period of time but they've got i mean they've obviously got athletes but no we're talking about a look at the tier above them that's a lot to overcome but you know let's say also here's a second general comment we're a quarter of the way through the season we're a quarter of the way let's not go jumping too high or too low on these teams especially because of one loss records so without even looking at the names eric yeah. i'm gonna say i don't know i'll give you a, a 33 percent premium or something like that on the on the top two versus the next two. Yeah, I always say, here's what we're going to find out about the Bucs. You know, we were just talking about the Buccaneers. Well, here's who they've played, by the way. They lost to the Saints. Okay. They've beaten Denver, yeah, right. the Panthers, <laughs> and the Chargers. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not saying – all I'm saying is they haven't played – they haven't beaten a team that's above 500 yet. I understand it's only four games – but before we put them, let's see how they do this. I'll be interested. I think they should win. Let's, they're the Thursday night game this week. Let's see how they do at, at uh, Bears. Yeah. That will not be a trivial game. And by the way, it happens to be the intrigue. It is a Brady-Foles rematch. 
Yes. No. I mean, I, I hope it goes better than the last one, but you know, I mean, if, if it's, if it's like a, you know, a fifth as exciting as that last one, we're, we're in for a hell of a game. No, it's, it's certainly, I, I feel like in general, the Thursday night matchups have been well, better Kate, where does Massey, I mean, last where week. Where does Massey Peabody have the Buccaneers right now? Well, you know, I, I, I tried to get your attention last week when they were sitting in the top five, they've dropped a little bit. We still have them number seven, but you know, you were raving about, the Packers and Seattle, and they're right in there between them. You know, we have mm-hmm. Seattle five, Rams yeah. Bucks at seven, and right there with Green Bay. I mean, we'd have it a very, we'd have it a, t- a coin toss on a neutral field against Green Bay right now, which is pretty good company. My gosh. No, and I, I mean, I kind of, you know, you know, I, it, it certainly, I mean, I certainly enjoyed it for that decade or so when it was always uh, Manning or Brady or Roethlisberger, uh, like going to the Super Bowl. But I do like that it, it seems a little bit more wide open now yeah. in terms of like the kind of younger, the next generation of quarterbacks, the super young ones like Lamar Jackson, Mahomes, the kind of more intermediary ones like Russell Wilson. I mean, it's going to be a joy to watch these guys over the next decade or so. Agreed fully. So um, with all that said, the slate this weekend doesn't look very exciting. I mean, just rolling through these real quick, the, the game, what game most interests you guys? We've got the Pennsylvania shootout, which is always fun. Philly, uh, the, the Eagles are visiting the Steelers, which is mm-hmm. maybe they, maybe yeah, they that'll can be a good one. That'll well, be good. you know, hope, hopefully the, the Eagles will, will get a little bit going. I, I'm intrigued by Burrow. And so anything the Bengals are doing these days, I'm curious to see. He has his first game against the Ravens. Of course, I'm always interested in the Ravens, but since he, yeah. um, since he Baltimore divisional game, Burrow's fifth game, he had a good game in la- last weekend. That's one of the games that I'm most interested in this week. I think the game I'm interested in actually, because I think it could end up mattering a lot for who makes the playoffs is the Monday night game, which is Rams at, yeah. I think that's Rams. That's oh, Rams Chargers. at Saints, right? It's Chargers. Oh, Chargers. Chargers at Saints. No, never mind. I'm not as interested. You're right. The Rams are at the Redskins. I think one that does actually kind of have a lot of potential playoff consequences is t- uh, Bill's Titans. And that's also uh, two teams that I think we could yeah. stand and continue to learn a bit about, right? I think that it, that potentially could that's be good. a matchup of two obviously kind of well-coached teams um, with sort of, you know, with, with decent – you know, but perhaps not elite quarterbacks. So, I mean, Josh Allen, you know, he keeps playing like this and well, it's be hard not to call him elite. There is a game right. between, there is a game between two teams that are three and one. Colts at Browns. It's Why is Colts that are three and one? The Colts wow. are three and one. <laughs> Same record as the Browns. All right. We have All right. Problem. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I guess I had not. Uh, honestly, the AFC South, Every year that comp- or that division just confuses me. I never know what's going on. Um, you know the Texans. You know almost almost the beat the Chiefs. In the, yeah, they almost beat the Chiefs Bill in the Brian. playoffs last year. Now they're basically zero and four and have overhauled their entire front. You know front office. It's amazing. Well, they, they, yeah. they it's, it's it's on the one hand they had an unbelievably rough early schedule, and so I mean one and three would have been perfectly understandable. Would have been yeah, ex- um, ex- wonderful. On yeah. the other hand, Bill O'Brien has, has been misguiding that place for a while. Yeah. Um, I think no, it's as long overdue as far as I'm concerned. Just but let me ask it, you it's just kind of the timing of it seems a little surprising right yeah. now. Just a quick no, question. Your last point's an important one, Kate. I don't think people, they look at the record of the Texans and we as analytics people, what would you expect their record to be? Like how <laughs> far below expected number of wins are the Texans actually right now? They're not yeah. two wins below expectation. But that, whenever, that suggests that there was some discontent. When you get canned this early in the season, that suggests that there was some discontent among the, 
I mean, heck, he was probably the second most powerful guy in the organization. Yeah, I mean, DeAndre Hopkins being like the one of the maybe the number one receiver in the NFL right now probably didn't help his case as well over in Arizona. I I, I can't assume. Sure. Um, All right. So um, let's talk a little bit about the college side of things. Have y'all paid much attention? I had to kind of bury my head in the sand this weekend. I got some sympathetic tweets from some folks on this call which I appreciate it, but I, I've been, but it's amazing how magically I care less about college football come, come Sunday morning. And I just magically care less about college football, but there are some interesting things going on. Sadly, the Texas Oklahoma game is not one of them. That is this weekend. And it's rarely been less meaningful. Stuart Mandel pointed out that not only are they coming in with a collective three losses, which obviously makes it less interesting, but it's played to a, you know, a 25% capacity stadium on state fairgrounds when there's no state fair, Fellas, you've never been to a more unique football environment than the Texas OU game in the middle of the state fair. It's extraordinary, and that's not happening. Yeah, it it must be really, really fun in normal times. It's going to be a little bit – it's going to be a little sad. Now, Clemson-Miami is one of the most interesting ones this weekend. So, Miami has really come on strong. They've got a transfer quarterback out of U of H, Derek King, who is super exciting. They've got the coaching staff on a roll now, and they're really showing up for the first time in a while. So, there's an ACC competition, at least potentially – for Clemson. And we're going to find out this weekend. And, you know, expectations are still pretty modest, but at least we have something interesting in the ACC regular season. We haven't had that historically. No, that's one of the games I flagged. I flagged Georgia, Tennessee. Yeah. Which is another big game this week. Well, on that point, I mean, Georgia, we, we, you know, Georgia hadn't looked super impressive the first couple of weeks of the season. And the big game last weekend was Georgia Auburn and they hosted it. Um, Game day was down there and it was tight line, and then they just pounded Auburn. I mean, yeah. just completely showed up. And so Georgia all of a sudden looks like maybe – I mean, look, it's one game. Let's not overreact. But they are, we know, one of the most talented rosters out there. They're in the same company as Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. Those four have really separated themselves in terms of talent. And if they can actually start living up to that, I mean, that's a serious team. At least they got some yeah. sign of that last weekend. And Georgia-Alabama is uh, in a couple weeks, right? I haven't looked that far ahead. I think I just like go back to the Big Twelve just for a second. So now, does that put Oklahoma State in a position where they can, you know, win the Big Twelve title and maybe they go to the game? Maybe they go to the playoffs now. Well, you know, you know, same thing about the NFL. Let's not overreact too soon. What's true is that they're undefeated and they're the only undefeated team in the Big Twelve. I mean, odds are against the Big Twelve landing anybody in the playoff at this point because the two teams with with good priors coming into the season, which are helpful for the politics, Texas and Oklahoma are, have been very disappointing. But, oh, I mean, Oklahoma State, I mean, let's wait and see. We're not huge believers in them yet. I mean, there's – anybody can beat anybody, apparently, in the Big 12 any given weekend this year. So, I'm, I'm holding I'm – holding I'm keeping my powder dry on the Cowboys right now. And just to re, just to remind me, there, are we doing the is, – is, is it kind of the current plan to do the four-team the four team playoff at the end and all the conferences are still eligible for that despite the different start dates and everything yeah they're going to play different games and so the pac 12 is getting started so late they're only going to play seven games but they're going to wrap that up before christmas i think the playoff committee has bumped out their selection weekend to accommodate that and so now they're going to be able to pick you know if oregon goes undefeated or usc goes undefeated they're going to have an interesting challenge on their hands to weigh that against like a one loss you know georgia or a 
one loss Ohio State. It's going to be super interesting. Isn't this actually an interesting opportunity? I know you guys study not only predicting records in Mass EP, buddy, but who's going to make the playoffs. Isn't this an interesting <laughs> thing to un- – look, there's normally not variation in number of games. So now yeah. you've added an extra source of variation, which yeah. could allow them – do they care about 7-0, and o, the O, right. or do they care about 11-1 yeah. and one versus a strong schedule? We, we have talked about it explicitly. I mean, it's, it reminds me more of the early days of the committee when we started modeling it. It was just a, it was just a political model. I mean, we didn't have data to work with. And right. then over, over time, we could start fitting some things. Not, it's not just one per year. You get multiple weeks per year. And so you get data over time. But now those data aren't relevant because we're in such a different stage. And so we're back to being just a straight up kind of subjective political model. It's What's so, actually interesting is if you gave one of the top teams a choice now, based on priors and based on the politics, to play less games, they'd take it. If you said to Alabama, you can only play seven games right now, and they'd be and but still, we're going to count those seven as if you played 11 or 12, they'd be like, uh, yeah. But our, I mean, isn't this just kind of a, a, l- a little bit of a, an extended version of what was already happening? I mean, already these teams each play different numbers of consequential of competitive games right and already the top teams have been biasing right. their schedule That's away from competitive games a hundred percent agreed Shane and but but I think this is the point that yeah. all of the craziness and unbalanced imbalance imbalance considerations that the committee always has to do in college football is just on steroids yeah year. it's obviously exacerbated this year that's right it's super, super interesting all right fellas well that has been the first half of important money but we still have a half to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Special Zoom edition, as we've been doing during the pandemic. We're rolling into the second half. Adi Weiner has rolled in and joined us. Welcome, Adi. Good afternoon to you. Yeah, it's good to be back for sure. Adi's here. Eric Bradlow's here. Shane Jensen just had to step away. He's going to be out for the balance of the show here. And Cade Massey with you hosting. Um, we talked football. Last quarter, uh, there's some other sports going on. Uh, Adi, Adi is, I know, has been paying attention to what's going on in baseball. So I'm a little out of it. I'd love to have a rundown of the series. You guys tell me what, what's going on and what you expect out of these four series now that we're down to the normal number of baseball teams in the playoffs. Well, I'll just point out, you know, uh, Eric and I talked about it last week before the playoffs began, and uh, one of the uh, – themes was that in a short season, you got to regress back or at least be take account of pretty strongly your preseason players in a way that we don't, don't typically do that in baseball. So baseball is a long, long season and your preseason expectations really drop out of the equation when it comes right. to the playoffs in a normal season. Right. I think that's not true. For, it's certainly not true for, N, for NCAA basketball. We know that. Um, I wonder how much it's true in football. I would guess that it's pretty true. Yes. And certainly sure. true in basketball that, that preseason may pretty probably gets mattered nothing. But in a short season in baseball, 
60 games, some teams even have that. We actually got to regress back. And so I was quite sanguine on both the Yankees. It's hard for me not to be. That's a home team um, bias. But also the Astros because they were right. they were preseason favorites and, and you just can't walk away from that. And they, they both the Yankees and the Astros, of course, trounced their opponents in the three-game sure. shorts. Um, they also oh, they trounced in the in the in the in the wild card series, but last night they yeah. both trounced as well. And I was about they to did ask again. you, yeah. you can't really read anything into a trouncing in a single game, right? So they the Yankees beat the uh, Rays nine to three, I think. The Astros beat the A's ten to five or something like that. Yep. But there's not really much information in the margin of victory, is there, in baseball? Well, Eric, you want to take a stab at margin of victory in baseball? Generally not, but <laughs> I, I well. I would say less about margin of victory, but more about, remember, these are the best pitchers in baseball. The Yankees faced the um, Indians' number one pitcher. A lot of people think maybe the Cy Young Award winner. Um, They faced the Rays' number one pitcher. So, you know, there was enough time between series. So they've faced two number ones and obviously a number two for Cleveland. And they've put up, I think it's 12, 11, and 9. And so I think there's a lot to say. In other words, if you're a Yankee fan, let's say you, you take the same difference in score, but subtract four runs and say, oh, the Yankees put up eight, seven, and five, or eight, seven. People are like, yeah, but 12, 11, and nine against the two ones and a two? I think people are saying, this is the hitting team we expected to see. Right. And I think anybody facing the Yankees right now you better put in a seven game series, you better have four or five games where you put up seven or more because this Yankee team is going to put up five, six runs and an average day right now. I no, think that's right. This is, is a super Yankee lineup that has essentially no weaknesses. Uh, it's just, it's, there's no seven, eight, nine that you can feast on in the Yankee lineup. Are they Nothing. back from injury? They were yes. a couple years worth of injuries now, and now it's solid. All right. So tell me, I would think they've got this. They've got the, you can tell me about this format, but they're playing five games in a row, which is, I feel like they, they never do that. So five games in a row. Does that favor the hitters as well or, or not? Does, do you have enough? It has to. I think it has to, because let's take an example. Um, most pitchers today don't pitch on three days rest. So let's take the Yankees. It, it, let's take the Yankees. The Yankees, uh, obviously, Garrett Cole pitched yesterday. If he wants to pitch game five, if there is one, he's got to pitch on three days rest. He didn't pitch all season on three days rest. And so, remember, games are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He gets Tuesday through Thursday off. So I would think, therefore, better hit- hitters are going to face weaker pitchers. So, well, so the – Go ahead, Adi. Well, just their bullpen doesn't have a chance to, you know, regenerate themselves. They have to, uh, they have to pitch almost every day. So on the, on the rest in baseball pitching, how much of it is about the acute load versus the chronic load? So I understand rest would make a big difference over the longer term. So you, you don't pitch on three days rest all season. That's great. They're much, much more sustainable. But given that you haven't had this chronic load, is it really that big a deal to carry a bit of an acute load? And would it really matter much? Would it, do you think it would impact performance on that game if, if Garrett Cole had to pitch on three days rest? You know, I'm going to take a stab at it. I mean, this is the kind of question we would probably want to bring to the attention of actual pitching coaches. Uh, they might actually have more to, to say on the subject, but I would guess not. We've seen it in the past so frequently in right. World Series playoff games where the elite starter goes out and pitches one four seven in a World Series and doesn't seem to let up much. 
Um, of course, the Yankees in 2001 got just, you know, snookered by such a, a maneuver. Let me ask you a question. Um, <laughs> um, this is going to be my answer. Do we know, let's take that season, had Randy Johnson or Schilling, uh, yeah. had they pitched mm. on three days rest during the season? So I agree with Kate. I like I the concept so. of long, yeah. like, is it over the period of a season? But let's say I'm making this up. As far as I know, Garrett Cole has never pitched on three days rest. So the question becomes, he may be rested enough, but is his body not, is his arm not ready? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good question for pitching coaches, for pitchers themselves, for sports science folks. Tell me about the other series, guys. So the A's, the A's made it through, happily won a playoff series. Happily, and of course, and the, and the Minnesota Twins lost again, two more right. games in a row, up to 18, I think it is, it is consecutive games lost in the playoffs, which is astounding. I mean, it's a really an astounding it's achievement. It's hard to imagine. I guess we play enough series and somebody's going to do it, Adi. Is that the, is that the most parsimony? Um, quite honestly, uh, what, what do you think? Let's do a quick calculation. Oh, I no, mean, a half eight, eight, easy. Two to the 18th, I mean. The Congress is pretty easy because we know a half to the 10th is 1,024. So a half to the 20th yeah, would be one in a million. And so they're one quarter, they're a quarter it's less one and a quarter than million, and 250,000. Yeah, one in 250,000 right now. It's outrageous. I mean, there aren't that many playoffs here, uh, teams no, who, who entered the playoff. And it is, it is just a, well, of course, we're going to, we're going to, how many of those games were against the Yankees? 14. Um, terrific we Yankees flipping, teams. We weren't flipping fair coins. Exactly. We weren't flipping coins. 14. 14 right. games against 14 them. out of the 18 against the Yankees, and they were not flipping coins against them. They were some of the most astounding Yankee teams featured. So still, even if it's even if it's one quarter, even if you were to that, – that's still a, an extremely uh, unlikely event that they would lose that many. So uh, are the Astros real? The A's are playing them now. They're down one game already. We've got five get days in a row. Are they back? They were off. They seem to be kind of off all season. People are making snarky comments about, you know, everyone's batting performance being down. What's your take mm. on the Astros? Well, let me – I'll give you my answer right now. As a Yankee fan, if you ask me how much more I'd rather play the A's and the Astros, I'd say by a large margin. I'm hoping yeah. the A's win that series, despite the fact that the A's Thank were 36-24 and 24 for the season and the Astros were seven games back at 29-31. Yeah. and 31. Yeah, right. Exactly. I would agree. I mean, look at their back lineup, the despite price. the fact that they had a garbage post-garbage can adjustment. Uh, that's a, obviously just a toss-off comment unsupported by data, but their, their top players certainly had some troubles this season. Right. But I, I expect them to regress back going forward. I mean, that's always the question. You, you stand up, and I was watching you know, Stanton get up there and judge, and neither of them had particularly good seasons for the amount of time that they even played. And do you ask, do you, do you, do you really prefer some of the hot players on the Yankees, like Urshela or Torres, who's particularly hot right now in the playoffs? Or do you want... You're, 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 do you want Judge and Stanton? And I'm thinking to myself, no, it's Judge and Stanton. You have to go back to the, the years of, of, um, of performance in any given situation. Yeah. Just to give you uh, an I, idea, I, Cade, you asked a question about who would advantage. Like, if I name the Yankee pitcher for you tonight, I'm betting 90% of our fans, 98% of our fans don't even know who this is. No idea. No. It's Debbie. It's an astounding choice. Garcia. And so he's a okay. five foot eight pitcher, five foot eight. Five foot nine. I think you're you're taking an inch away, at least from what they said last night. I know. I think they said five seven. I was giving him generosity and saying five. <laughs> you're giving him generosity. You think? Five, I don't think nine, so. You know, anyway. as, uh, yeah. someone that's six three or six four. When they list somebody at five nine, that means he's five seven. But whatever. The guy that's throws. Right. The guy throws mid nineties, and mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, but that's who they're starting in the second game of a best of five series. And he's 21 years old. He had a three and two record this year. I just looked with a, his ERA was four, nine, eight. I mean, Hmm. what's what's the story? What's the story? Why are they choosing this guy? No reliable second pitcher. Yeah. Really? That bad? Tanaka had a a horrible outing in the uh, game against Cleveland. We won. That was the game we came back and won 10 to nine. We were down Mm -hmm. that entire game. Yeah. Maybe they've lost faith in Tanaka. They also lost their, they're going to bomb into injury to injury. And you know, the rest of the crew, Montgomery, Hap are not looking great. So. Well, that's the, that's the order. Garcia's pitching this game. Tanaka, you assume, will be game three. Some combination of Montgomery, Happ will pitch game four. And you assume if it gets to a game five, we'll find out how much uh, Garrett Cole can pitch on three days rest. Well, listen, you guys are – it's really tough to drag out – talk baseball without you talking to the Yankees. I've been trying. I'm going to keep on trying. NL Series. we got a couple of interesting regional matchups. When, when the outsider looks at this, it's like, oh, this is kind of cute. LA's playing San Diego – and Atlanta's playing Miami. I know not to believe in Miami, and there's something about me that is kind of surprised even that Atlanta's in there. We haven't seen them competitive much lately, right? But then we have the Dodgers, who are the oh. giants in the West, right? And then we have these, yeah. haven't been there in a long time, Padres, who I can't help but pull for. But you look at those four, it's hard not to see the Dodgers make it through, right? Well, yeah. So right now, by the way, just so you know, um, as we're taping right now, the Marlins are up 4-3 in the seventh inning. All right, um, go Marlins. Of game one, the Marlins are up 4-3 in the seventh. Um, the Dodgers are minus 160. So their odds, basically all the other games today were minus 110, minus 115. Yeah, yeah, the right. Dodgers are minus 160. So Adi, that's what? About 60%. Yeah, it's 160 yeah. over 260. Yeah. So that's a little over over 60%. Can you, you have to, there's, a, there's a built-in uh, uh, big for the, for the Vegas people. So you got to take that down a little bit, but yep. Let's say it's 60, even 150 then. Let's say it's 60%. Yeah. It's 60%. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a sense, since you study this all the time, how extreme is that in baseball for a team to be a 60-40 favorite? Is that the 60-40 for the series or a 60-40 for tonight's, a game? Just tonight's game. That's not that unusual, particularly when you one your starting pitcher is Clayton Kershaw. It's not. It's Bueller. Bueller's oh, is it Bueller? Yeah, okay, it might even be larger odds tomorrow night. It would be bar- larger odds if it were tomorrow night, yeah. Padres it's, also, it's, also, it's not – I mean, that's about as – I mean, in a playoff series, in a playoff. that's – in a playoff series, it's about as high as it gets. I mean, yeah, it's right. not baseball. You, it's very rare that you find a, a, an odds that, that even approach 70%. And so 60% yeah. is about as high as it comes. I think – I mean, that's such an important fact that you made because if I told you that – the Golden State Warriors of three years ago were playing the number eight seed. You give them much higher than a 60% chance. If oh, I told yeah. you that Nadal was playing some low-ranked player, you'd give them a 95% chance. If I told you, you know, so what's interesting about baseball is 60-40, it shows you how much there's randomness. 60-40 is extreme for baseball. If I told you the mm-hmm. Chiefs were paying the Jets right now, it's a lot more than 60-40. So I'm saying yeah, that's not a playoff game. That's not a playoff game. No, but um, even, even and- if the Chiefs, the Chiefs, let's say at the end of the year, if the Chiefs play the worst of the playoff teams in the AFC, mm-hmm. they're going to be more than 60-40. Yeah. I would guess, but I don't think they'd be more than 64. I think the Dodgers are more than 60-40 for the series. So a single baseball game is an incredibly random event, yes. Well, that's what we study here on Wharton Mind. I think yeah. that's what our listeners want to hear about. Yeah. It's just, the best you can get might be 60-40. 
Yeah, for a playoff series, it's about as big as it comes. But the, don't sell the you know the Marlins are a surprise. I heard a statistic. I don't, I don't know if it's true. I'm sure Eric, you can confirm it. That the Marlins, despite never making it to the playoffs that often, they've never actually lost a series. Is that no, because that's true? <laughs> that's that's true. true. They've only made before this year. They've only made the playoffs twice. They won the World Series both of those years. They haven't yeah, made so they the playoffs since 2003, but this year they won a playoff series. But yes, when they make the playoffs, they've never lost a playoff series. I felt like it was just a minute ago that they were selling all their assets and just trying to, you know, it's kind of a mess in the front office and everybody thought they weren't even trying to be competitive. What, what happened to that team? How did they go from that to this so quickly? How much of it's chance versus they actually put together a good team? Eric, you want to take this one? <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I can't, I mean, obviously they've had a change of leadership in the meantime too. I mean, those sold off players weren't under Derek Jeter's regime. Now mm-hmm. we're under the Derek Jeter regime. So is he actually, is he act- actively managing the club in some way? He's not just a figurehead down there. I, I, I have no knowledge except what his title is. So I, I think he's actually managing the team. You know, I'm going to put that out as a research question for us to get an answer to. I, all, the only uh, data point that I have is a former student of ours is uh, started as an analyst two years ago. I think he was one of their first hires as an analyst. Um, so this is they definitely were a backwater when it came to spending money on sports analytics in the old regime, and they've certainly started to invest in it. So maybe well, that has something to do with it. But, but uh, you know, we're going to talk in a minute about the Miami Heat. And there was a nice piece on Battier recently um, Mm -hmm. because obviously the Heat's doing quite well in the playoffs. But uh, your student ought to be connected with the Heat. They've taken their analytics pretty seriously down there since Mm -hmm. Battier's been around. That's his job, basically. Um, All right. uh, Last question on baseball. If it does come, if if the Dodgers do make it out of the West and your team, the Yankees, make it out of the East. How are you feeling about that matchup? Is it, is, are we I'm feeling about 1978 all over again? What do you think? Well, <laughs> has, has that not happened since we were kids? I mean, it feels like that was, that was the world series matchup. Yes. For a number of years. Did the Yankees not play the, um, the Yankees didn't play the Dodgers in 80. It wasn't. They might have an 80 as well. I don't remember that. That's a, that's not, I don't have a, a an encyclopedic memory for the dates of world series. Uh, um, confrontations, but it's been a long, long time, and it would be terrific to see. I mean, the it biggest markets great. in the country, right? No, no the 80, 1980 World Series actually. Well, it depends which season, but the Phillies actually won. That was the seventy nine eighty season. Yeah, was which the, was the um, Valens, Was Valenzuela eighty one? That Valenzuela was eighty one. That was mm-hmm. definitely definitely eighty one. But okay. the news that is the that, Yankees, they, that was the Yankees Dodgers was eighty one. But he, I think a better question, Cade, uh, is uh, is will Eric go to the World Series in in person if they if uh, the Yankees are in it because they are opening it to fans. Where where okay. are they playing it? They're Arlington. playing in Arlington. Oh in no, Texas. You're not going. Okay. <laughs> so there's there's little to get you there. But I think one of us who's located in Texas should go. <laughs> I wonder what matchup, what matchup would be required for me to want to do that. It's, it's a, Houston? I don't know. What would you like to see? The Yankees-Dodgers, I would. I, yeah, I think Yankees, it'd be tough to beat Yankees-Dodgers, especially if you're our age and grew up on those teams in the mm-hmm. 70s. Um, but, I mean, it is, it's three hours away. It's fun. I mean, World Series game. I mean, that'd be fun, period. And it, I, I'm curious how, how hard tickets would be, you know? But if, if I think no 11,000 tickets they're planning to sell. Right, they can't have Generally, that, that goes to friends and family and connected people in a World Series, yeah. practically. Well, this is an upside of baseball. You get multiple games. 
right? That's true. I mean, it's, it's not just. But one, I think I think you're right. I mean, in other words, you're asking us if the Yankees. Let's let's take Yankees or Astros. If the Yankees or Astros were playing the Dodgers. How much of a favorite would we make the Dodgers? And I think the answer is, um, in the same way you were saying, I, to win the series, maybe in the twenty percent range, twenty to thirty percent range, but not oh, more. Okay. You wow. would make them more, Adi. You would if the Yankees and the Dodgers play in the World Series. You'd agree the Dodgers would have to be the favorite. But oh, of course, I would. But I wouldn't say they'd be. They'd probably be the favorite for the series. They'd probably be sixty-five, a little bit higher than what you said, twenty twenty-five. Okay, more than more than I thought. So they really are. They really two are two to the, one. Yeah, I mean, in a seven-game series with with essentially a Yankees pitching staff that's weak, um, it's hard okay. to imagine that they would get more than thirty-five percent. People okay. will bet on the Yankees, so that might make the odds. Um, a little bit closer to even than they deserve to be and might actually turn into be an opportunity. Who knows? All right. So we do have one series, one in the, one, one sports series in the finals. Now the heat and Lakers are playing. Have y'all paid much attention to this because we thought it was going to be a snooze fest after the first two games. And then Jimmy Butler and the heat managed to take three and um, game three. That is. And uh, so are we back on? Do we have a series or, or is this going to be something or, or do you think game four is going to go back to chalk? Well, I've watched a lot of it. And actually, you know, one of the challenges, as Adi knows, I have, well, I don't have challenges because I got a lot of TVs. But I mean, I'm going to be watching the Yankees Rays game and the Heat uh, uh, Lakers tonight. I mean, they're both on at the same time. The Yankees game starts a little earlier, 8 10 versus 9 o'clock. But, um, and we'll go a lot longer. <laughs> yep, and we'll go a lot longer. Um, it's all going to come down to this game. In other words, if the Heat want to get back in the series, they have to win this game. If they go down 3-1, I'm not saying, look, we know the Lakers did it. I mean, the, uh, uh, not the Lakers. Uh, LeBron did it with the uh, Heat and everything. I just don't see the Heat coming back from a 3-1 deficit. So I think this is the game where you will see the best LeBron James has. I think he realizes whatever energy he has, he's putting into this game because he knows if they go up 3-1, to one, their chances of winning the series are dramatically increased. And Eric, okay, that's your setup. And I, I believe I know you well enough to know that you have kind of a great man theory of basketball performance. You know, the great man theory of history yep. has been kind of underman, undermined over time. But we still have, in some sports, you know, I think a great man theory of football is often told and usually wrong. We give quarterbacks too much credit, maybe at the high school level, sometimes at the college level, rarely at the pro level. But in basketball, you believe that if LeBron James shows up and plays at the top of his game with the determination that you think he's going to bring, given the situation, you, you just kind of think they're going to win, right? I do. I do. I think what's going to happen is also because of the, the way the Heat are constructed. I predict, this is my belief, LeBron James, since, by the way, just to remind everybody, um, Jimmy Butler, who was on the Sixers, unfortunately he's not, he put up a 40-point triple-double in game three. A 40-point triple <laughs> double my belief is lebron james will be covering jimmy butler in game four and let's see if jimmy butler can put up a 40 point triple double with lebron james covering him that's what we're going to find out i didn't watch the game so why wasn't lebron covering him in the in in game three especially given that butler was covering him a fair bit butler butler's given credit for frustrating james some in that game Yep. Um, I think, Adi, I think what's happened is, is that uh, there was a lot more switching. The Lakers are typically a team that switches a lot on pick and roll basketball. So mm-hmm. basically the, every heat offensive play is pick and roll basketball. And I think what you're going to see is I think you're going to see less switching by LeBron James. And, you know, normally the concern about you're not switching is the guy shooting over the top. I think they will be thrilled as many 
bad analytic two-point jumpers as Jimmy Butler wants to take, he can take every 18-foot bad analytic two-point jumper that he wants. And that's <laughs> what I think is going to happen. LeBron will stop him from penetrating, which is where he gets to the foul line and does a lot of his damage. And don't switch. Just let Jimmy Butler score from the outside. But twos, he doesn't shoot threes that much. Let him take as many 18 to 20-foot twos as he wants. Which he so, makes it around 45% or so? Or he's one of the best, I will say, he's one of the top three players in the NBA on that range of shot. Mm-hmm. But yes, Which is around 50% or is it, what is the number? Do you know what it is? I, I don't know the number, but it's probably somewhere in the 45% range. Right, which is why the three is so much better because threes are about 35 and multiply that by three. <laughs> you, you have an expected value of about 1.15, 1.2 and multiply 0.5 by two and you're at one and not even that or 45% is 0.9. So at, at Eric's point is well taken. If you let him take 18 foot shots at 45%, that's just not a good shot. But he's saying they're gonna, he's going to force him because he likes to take it all the way to the hoop. And so Eric wants a defense that, that, for, that forces him to settle for the mid-range jumper, mm-hmm. essentially, instead of getting that, instead of getting that drive, Eric. Before we wind down here, we have an active, as in they're playing right now, French Open, and I'm curious to hear what your take is. Your your boy lost this afternoon, did he not? There was a five-hour marathon match in the quarters down there. Um, yeah, tell us what's mean, going on. You mean my boy? You mean uh, Dominic Team? Yes, um, yes. I actually watched almost all of that match, um, and. Uh, Team just ran listeners, out of gas. Listeners, that's five hours. I don't know. Eric probably wrote a paper during those five hours, but it's amazing to hear him say how much. Well, when I say watch, I mean, it's on a screen over here. While I'm working here, I can got one eye on the screen, one guy on the, on the TV. Um, he just ran out of gas. I mean, he had just won the U.S. Open, as you guys may remember. Um, he just played like a five-hour – you remember the exhausting final he played against Zverev. And so um, there was almost no break between that. And then he played this tournament in Rome, and then he just had no rest whatsoever. And you could and see he, it? You could see it on the court? Oh, absolutely. He really – basically, in the fifth set, I don't think I've ever seen anybody hit more drop shots – than theme from behind the baseline. Like he was just trying to end points with winners. Look, I see it in squash. I, I, as you know, I'm a squash parent. When you're tired, you don't want to go for the rallies. You go for what are called nick out winners. And that's essentially what theme was doing when he lost the fifth set tiebreaker, fourth set tiebreaker, by the way, sets one, three, and four went to tiebreakers. When he lost the tiebreaker in the fourth set, I was like, theme is done. Right. Done. So, you're, so I shouldn't get too excited about, Schwartzman or whatever his name well, is. Well, the problem is the, the person on Schwartzman's side of the draw is the king of clay. And so Schwartzman is in the semifinals, except he's likely. It's not the match hasn't even been played yet. It's being played tonight. Rafa Nadal is playing a, a, Italian, a guy, Yannick Sinner, who's an up-and-coming guy. But no, Schwartzman's not beating Rafa Nadal on clay. No chance. And <laughs> the interesting thing is, let me just quickly just go to the women's side. Here's the fascinating thing about the women's side. So our, our semi, one semifinalist right now on the women's side was what's called a qualifier. Now, let me explain to everybody, our listeners, what a qualifier means. This person's not in the top 128 in the world. They're invited to come to the French Open and play three matches against other qualifiers. And if they win those matches, they get into the draw. Because they take like 125 people in and three lucky qualifiers make it. Well, this qualifier today, Nadia Podoroska, just beat the number three player in the world, Alina Svitolina. Oh and God. she beat her 6-2, So she's in the what? semifinals. The other semifinalist on her side of the draw, her side of the draw, which means one of them will be in the finals. 
None of you have heard of Iga Swiatek. She's the other person in that side of the draw. She's ranked number 54 in the world. She beat the number one player, Simona Halep, 6-1, So one of the two of them is going to be in the finals. But here's my question. The women's side of the draw is just crazy. The men's goes to chalk. Like all the men left are seeded players. Right. We are, I already told you there's going to be an, not only possibly an unseated, but a qualifying woman in the finals of the <laughs> All right. It's you've amazing. Given, you've given us more reason to watch. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. But it no, is it's exciting. Weird. The question is, let's go back to Adi's point about baseball. Yeah. Why is there so much variance in women's tennis as opposed to men's tennis? Is it the serve? You know, the serve just blows people away. Is it, or is it that, we only think there's no variance in men's tennis because three of the greatest of all time happen to be playing at the same time. So it appeared, you know, take away Nadal, uh, you know, uh, Djokovic and Federer, and you'd see 20 different guys winning 20 majors. Here's a really boring explanation. For the majors, anyway, isn't it the case that men play three out of five and women play two out of three? They that do, yes. So that would go some of the distance towards explaining. That goes some ways, let me tell you. Um, but in, in, in general, we, we just see, we think that the dispersion of talent isn't as extreme in women's tennis, do we not? Now, I don't know why that would be, but isn't that kind of the way we have explained it for a while? Maybe that's just, you know, ex post rationalization of the results. Um, I don't, either way, I think the French Open women's tennis is really fascinating this year. The other side of the draw, by the way, does have some seeded women. Matter of fact, Grand Slam champions in it. Sophia Kennan is still alive, as is Petra Kvitova. So we'll see. But let me just say, the other two players on the other side of the draw, one of them is also a qualifier, and one of them's unseeded. Okay, good fun. I mean, I could respond with a technical argument, and that you could essentially say that there's maybe more variance in the men's side. More variance means that the highest um, values are further out. Yeah, and, that's what I meant by And that means give you just get you get a the, the absolute farther out are, are why would are that be just much better than 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 far out far, absolute far out and why would that be? Like we're kind of we're kind of grasping to that as a sufficient explanation without really having a reason for believing it to be true, other than the consequence that's generating the idea it is it is definitely a but you know you could look at the individual attributes and try to look at the look at the variance if you will we're not looking at percentiles but variance i mean you could look at there, there's a lot of things that go into tennis and, and maybe those attributes are more variable even among the top players yeah, strength a, speed endurance all right fellas that has been uh the third and final quarter of this week's show we're going to run a special in the last quarter of, of previous interview in the last quarter of the show so that is it for this week and wharton moneyball many thanks for listening for adi weiner for eric bradlow for shane jensen who had to step away here at the end and for maddie d our producer Deion simpkins our associate producer appreciate your listening we'll be back next week as we